You're listening to a Flower Pop production. Hello, lovely people. How are you? I hope you're good. And now look, here's a question for you. What is your work style? When we restrict ourselves to one job and think of it as somewhere we go, uh, Monday to Friday, nine to five, then that becomes the entirety of work's meaning. And we are led perhaps more by that than by what we really want to achieve. Nearly 10 years ago, colleagues Lizzie Penny and Alex Hurst had a conversation in the pub which would change their lives forever. Alex was suffering from burnout and Lizzie knew the way they were working had to change. But they didn't just want to change the way they worked, they wanted to help as many people as possible do the same. They had no idea then that this conversation would lead them to create Hoxby, a multi-million pound social enterprise which has helped thousands of people around the world do work they love within hours that suit them. They've worked with big companies like Unilever and Amazon and Forbes magazine has described them as creating the freelance revolution. They've written a book, a Sunday Times bestseller called Workstyle, encouraging everyone to look at the way they work and it's filled with some powerful research which is very hard for any of us to ignore. Lizzie and Alex are open and honest about the way their working has affected their lives and Lizzie had no idea a new way of working would be life-saving for her when she was diagnosed with cancer years later. If you think working in a job you love in a way that suits you will never be possible for you, well, Lizzie and Alex are encouraging you to think again. They are kind and generous with all their advice and they really want to help you create a life you love. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to author, I speak with incredible people who've already started their next chapter in the hope it might help you with your next chapter or at the very least you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here they are, Lizzie and Alex. Lizzie and Alex, well, I am delighted to have not one but two amazing people here on The Next Chapter. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. Okay. Well, listen, I'm going to just start at the beginning because, you know, we've got to, as we always do, we begin with the prologue. So, Lizzie, I'm going to start with you. And so you grew up in rural Somerset and you said you were a little bit of a geek. Actually, you said you're a total geek. You know, that's a good thing. That's a good thing, I think. Let's not understate it. I was an unshamed geek. In fact, I have a jumper that says geek across the front that I still wear. Um, But yeah, I just... I love learning. I still love learning. It's what Alex and I do, experiment all the time and learn from it. Um, so, yeah, I, I had a very happy, happy childhood. There were times I got frustrated that I lived 20 minutes from the nearest town. But, you know, it's the sort of thing that in theory is idyllic, growing up in the rolling hills with nothing around you. Um, but, yeah, it was very wholesome. And what kind of uh, pupil were you at school? I mean, you say you were sort of like, like to learn, but were you quite quiet? Did you have a particular interest in anything? I don't think I was quiet, no. I've always been fairly loud, a bit of an extrovert. Um, I, I didn't excel at anything particularly, um, but I enjoyed the the academic side and I tried everything. Captain of the fourth netball team, one of my particular sources of pride um, <laughs> but yeah like I, I was happy to try everything a bit part in the play you know try 
tried the sport, that sort of thing, but there was nothing in particular that I would say that I excelled at. It took me a while to find myself, as we'll find out in chapter one, yeah. first chapter. Oh, very good. I'm glad that you are aware of the format of this podcast. This is Betsy. Look, <laughs> you've been studying as you as you do, so that's good. And so, Alex, me, you me. you grew you grew up in Stamford in Leicestershire. Uh, yeah, well, Stamford's actually in Lincolnshire, but most of my family are from Leicestershire. Uh, I went to school in Stamford, yes. Um, being in the Midlands meant that we were too far away from London to do anything really cool. Uh, but I think once a year, maybe we went to the Science Museum or something like that when I was at school. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but yeah, I, I grew up, uh, I mean, I'd like to say that, you know, I had a... Um, I don't know, more interesting childhood than to say uh, it was pretty idyllic. I think um, I had everything I could ever want. I uh, was similarly, I think, um, a a geek for quite a long time uh, at school, Uh, academically uh, very conscientious, wanted to do well, get good results uh, and all that stuff. Uh, But I think at heart, I was also a little bit uh, rebellious, Mm. I think. I had an innate desire to um, push the boundaries of what I was allowed to do, which meant I got into trouble probably more than most of my geek peers. Um, (laughs) But I kind of, I don't know, got a bit of a kick out of it, I think. Um, I kind of knew that. I don't know if I was bored or what. I haven't sort of psychoanalyzed why that was. Um, But I would say that I was probably a bit more rebellious than than my fellow geeks. Mm, I love that you're geeks. I think geeks rule the world. I really do. And also, we'll get onto this, but obviously this, but what with, sort of Lizzie loves to learn everything and with your rebellious streak, this is obviously what what it has brought you onto, which we find so much in this podcast, that actually how you are at school, it does come out in the end. So anyway, anyway, but so Lizzie, so going back there, so you, there wasn't a particular subject. So what did you, I know that you went, eventually you were in accountancy, sales and marketing. So what did you do when you left school? Sort of all sorts. So I think... <clears throat> It took me a long time to find out what I wanted to do. And I think it's because career services, when we were at school, didn't give you loads of options. They said, you know, you're quite good academically. Do you want to be an accountant or a lawyer? Mm. And so I said, okay, I'll be an accountant because I quite like numbers. Um, But I kind of worked out what to do through process of elimination, you know. So tried accountancy. No, that wasn't for me. Tried sales. That wasn't for me. Um tried marketing and thought, oh, no, maybe this is a bit more fun. Um, But each of them had their own reason that I didn't want to work in them long term. Um, So accountancy, I worked for Arthur Anderson, who are no more. Um, But I was on the team that audited Enron, which for any finance geeks out there, that might mean something, Um, which meant that early on, I realized that companies aren't always as big and stable as they look. Um, and then I worked in Master Foods for sales. I put on two stone and I sat underneath a giant blow up Twix. Um, so that was a lot of a lot of free chocolate. Uh, and then I went to work for Diageo in marketing. So I started out on Guinness and then worked on Pim's Smirnoff um, and in innovation. And and then I think it was almost 
I, I thought if the, I was going to work anywhere, it would be Diageo. I love the culture. I love the people. I love the brands. But I think that was the thing that really made me think, hang on a minute, maybe I've got a bit more entrepreneurial spirit. But just going back, did you? so did you go to university? Did you? I mean, did you study accountancy? Oh, I did. Oh, yeah. Uh, I studied international business with Spanish. Wow. So business, I thought business was fascinating, but it was just finding my own place within it. And I think the thing that really excites me is the combination of kind of business and social change. Mm. Um, and I was, I was brought up to really be socially conscious and be aware of, you know, social problems and driving positive social change and having an impact on the world. And I think that's where it kind of didn't work with, you know, the professions that I tried that I didn't want to stay in. I think I didn't find them fulfilling enough mm. for that reason. I mean, we'll come on to talk about this, but I mean that because you worked at big companies there and three very different, I suppose, sales, marketing, maybe more linked. But yeah. but I mean, so you had a big experience, actually, a, a, a good uh, broad overview. So, Alex, what did you do after school? <sighs> Uh, I went to university as well. Uh, I studied product design. And the reason I chose that is because it was the thing that I enjoyed most at school. And I remember my dad giving me the advice to kind of do what gives me energy um, more than what might lead to a job, which which I thought was great advice, actually. Now, in hindsight, I feel like it was great but actually it was quite a difficult decision at, at that time because I didn't really know what that would mean in terms of work. And when I went to university and studied product design, I kind of came out of that four-year period with a degree in product design, but probably no longer had the desire to want to be a product designer, if that makes sense. So I got exposed to people who did that for work. And really it meant a lot of time kind of on your own behind a screen designing stuff or, or with pen to paper. And, and whilst I love the creative side of that, it's actually a very small percentage of what it actually a product designer does. There's a lot more detailed design and that sort of thing. And I'm a bit more of a people person than that. I kind of came to that discovery while I was at university that I wanted to be more involved with people. And um, I get a lot of uh, joy out of, just meeting people and having conversations and that sort of thing, which product design wouldn't really enable me to do in and of itself. So um, I decided to, I actually ultimately got into events and actually that was off organising the the, uh, product design exhibition for our our university in in my final year. I really enjoyed that process. So I ended up going into the events industry and um, I was there for quite a long time before I then moved into marketing when I realized that I wasn't going to be able to physically do events uh, forever because it was so exhausting I was up doing you know late nights long weekends it was hard and I didn't really want that as my lifestyle for the rest of my life so I did it for for a good a good five years or so and then uh, and then I moved on to marketing where I met Lizzie Wow. I mean, again, that's really different, though, isn't it? From product design, from saying like being going back to your lovely geek state, you know, start out in life, but then to go to product design, but then to events, which is a very sort of extrovert out there. I mean, that. Yeah. but um, again, sort of seeing all different ways of working, which is which is fascinating for what you both went on to. Where where did you go to university, yeah. Alex? 
Oh, I went to Bournemouth, um, which is uh, a place that I chose in part because it had an excellent reputation for product design, but in part because it also had a beach, which would which would equate to free entertainment. Well, yeah, absolutely. And where, <laughs> <laughs> where did you go, Lizzie? Uh, I was at Warwick. Okay. I went to the Midlands. I hadn't, hadn't been in the Midlands, but I'd go to Alex's neck of the woods for a while. Yeah. Um, I went well, to the Chemist University yeah. and I'd grown up in you know rural somerset so i wanted somewhere that was a bit more urban but i particularly wanted the campus university london felt a bit intimidating at the time but when i graduated i then moved to london Mm. i love this though that there you were you started off where you were you know and in lincolnshire and somerset and you were shifting around and your paths were going to meet and but we haven't got there yet because before we get to that bit i do need to ask you alex because lindsay put a little note i must ask you about the queen when it comes to events. Uh, oh, yes. I mean, I'm going to have to ask you uh, now. Well, so probably probably that the the well, the last kind of big thing that I did in events was um, I was doing temporary structures um, for events and the Queen was my client. Uh, wow. So we would do um, garden parties where we'd put marquees in the garden to, to host um, parties. And we also did a lot of work around the Buckingham Palace openings. Um, so where it opens to the public over the summer, we had to put in a lot of infrastructure to enable people to to go in and queue and do all of that stuff safely and respectably and all that. Um, and yeah, so it was fascinating. I had an opportunity to meet her and uh, believe it or not, we talked about the weather. Uh, although we talked <laughs> in a very British way, uh, we talked about the weather, but mostly in the context of uh, the marquees and the effect that the weather was having on the ground because all the water was going into the grass of the garden and it wasn't <laughs> ideal, particularly wet summer. Uh, so anyway, I won't bore you with any more, but but yes, that was a highlight probably for me for my of my events career. I really really enjoyed it um, as, a, as, a, as a remit and also an opportunity. Yeah, but that's not boring at all. You didn't you didn't pinch anything from there, did you? At all? Did you, Alex? Uh, no, I mean, security was very tight, as you might imagine, in the back garden at Buckingham Palace. But I did feel like I shouldn't have been there at times because I'd be driving in my car around the garden, taking bits of equipment from one end to the other. And it did feel like I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I had to do it because that was what I was there to do. So, yeah, it felt like I was trespassing, uh, mm-hmm. even though I never was. And I didn't certainly didn't steal anything. Thought, but perhaps that was exciting to me and that's why I enjoyed it so much. There you go. That's a slightly rebellious side coming out again. Yeah, but I was gonna say the rebellious side is coming out. And uh did you see anyone popping you know, did you see anyone wandering around, you know, any of the just as they were sort of in the garden while you were there? Uh yeah. Well uh yeah, occasionally where we'd be told to sort of keep a distance. Yeah. Yeah. You hung out with various famous people at award ceremonies. I remember you telling me about various people who you hung out oh, with yeah. the events <clears throat> that made me think, wow, it's such a cool yeah. thing to work in. Working in events is so fun. You meet loads of people. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's one of those things. It's, it's, there's, there's an adrenaline rush that comes with it and, and there's loads of perks, um, but it's also yeah, pretty hard on the body and uh, didn't get much sleep. 
Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can understand that. I think with events, it's one of those things. It sounds amazing, and I think you have to be a certain type of person because I think it could be ex- it can be exhausting to just it just exhausting. Um, which I know yeah. it's one of those jobs, isn't it? That we all think, oh, that's brilliant. But from people I know that I've spoken to that work in events, it's not always. But anyway, anyway, where exactly did you both meet? So we met. Um, yeah, go on, Alex. You go. Shall I just? I mean, I'll, I'll kind of build on the queen thing so i was doing events down in london and most of my career in events was in was actually uh i was on the sort of supplier side so i was doing a lot of meetings with clients like uh the queen uh but there were others (laughs) (laughs) um so my experience was mostly in that and um i was enjoying it but uh i got a call from a friend of mine uh who'd started a business with this amazing woman called Lizzie Penny, who I'd yet to meet. Mm-hmm. And would I be interested in going and have a chat with them about potentially joining what they were doing uh, and helping kind of look after the client base. And really that's when I first had the opportunity to meet Lizzie in person. Okay. So Lizzie, so how, so what, what had you done then? You'd left, so were you still at Diageo then? And or how, what, what, was no. your, what did you do? <clears throat> I'd left Diageo. So after I'd had the thought about working for myself, I just couldn't quite kick it. Um, And so I left with a friend from Diageo and we went to start a marketing outsource business. Um, And we did that for five years. Um, And Alex, I don't recall exactly at what point you joined it. It felt like you were there forever, but... Yeah, I think I'd after about the first year, maybe, or, or yeah. within the first year or something like that. Alex and I, a few years after that, had a kind of meeting of minds when my business partner and I had decided to go our separate ways. We decided that we wanted different things. And so I was at a bit of a juncture. Uh, and Alex and I had a conversation we frequently refer to in the pub um, where we came up with the concept of work style based on both of us having our own kind of personal circumstances that meant that for the first time it was really important to us to change how we work um and so we kind of came up with the, this idea of um this new word work style and this idea that everyone should have the freedom to choose when and where they work and to be judged on their output um, and for me that was because i just had my first child my son finn which really for the first time made me realize that there were people who just couldn't or didn't want to work nine to five, five days a week. And I didn't want to be working during his every waking hour. I wanted to be working nap times and evenings. And so that kind of was the thing that led me to the conversation with Alex about wanting to do things differently. Um, And we obviously thought it was a great idea. Um, And who would have thought eight years later? Um, here we'd be having read a book with work style as the title but anyway I'll let Alex tell his mm. story that brought him to that conversation yeah over two for one dark and stormy cocktail uh, <laughs> kind of classy like that aren't we um so for me it was burnout so I'd um kind of reached burnout by that point uh, realized that I needed to make some pretty major changes to my life um prior to that I was doing 12 hour days, five days a week um, and really validating my performance and my value on how many hours I spent working rather than necessarily what that work was delivering. 
so what I wanted to do was to, or what I realized I needed actually was a new way of thinking about work, a new psychological relationship with work that wasn't based on how much time I spent doing it, but based on what I delivered, the output, not the input. And I felt that with that, I would be able to kind of free myself from this pressure to, to do long, long hours and instead focus on um, what I was actually delivering and, and the value of that. Mm. Um, so we both kind of wanted the same thing, really, which was to be judged on our output rather than our input. And the word work style is the word that we came up with that night to kind of give us the language to talk about our individual preferences and kind of make the when and where we work a question of individual choice rather than an assumption of being in an office from nine to five, five days a week. So at this stage, you were both working in your in the marketing company that Lizzie had originally set up with a friend. So were you just were you? So obviously, Lizzie, you had when you were working at Diageo, this is where you started to think, hang on, rather than work for a big company, I would like to work for myself. So you already started to make that mental change rather than working for the big corporate and presumably you were you working for a big events company, Alex, when you were working in events? Presumably it was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big French company called GL Events. Okay, okay. So then yeah. when when you were then working within because when you sort of go off and then worked on set up your own thing there in marketing and you're working together, were you working really long hours there? Because presumably you were sort of working for yourselves as such, but I know it's not always quite quite like that, is it? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Yeah. And we were basically working in a traditional business. You know, we we started a traditional business, albeit a small one, um, where people worked in the office, where it was kind of nine to five slash eight till six or seven, um, five days a week type approach. So it was, it was, you can work for yourself, but still be in a very traditional format. You need to almost take make a conscious choice I think to work in a work style way and I think that's what Alex and I kind of left the pub with that night was a determination to properly test this way of working where we could fit our work around our lives rather than the other way around and we just hadn't been doing that until then. Mm-mm. I think it's amazing because I heard you say Alex which I thought was it was really I've never really heard it spoken like this before that basically you wanted to change your whole kind of psychology and your whole psychological relationship with work because you were feeling really bad weren't you you said you I think you had yeah. you had your first do you have your first child by now but you went on holiday and you just were you weren't even there you weren't even mm. there that's right I was detached um psychologically at that point so um it took my wife Sarah telling me that I'd become a shadow of myself me to realize that that was the case um so yeah i think um when up up until that point i would i would my relationship with with work was really based on how much time i spent doing it and i think a lot of that actually came from that experience of of the events industry as well where it was long hours and i was quite used to working long hours and one of the things that um, I had to kind of realise when I reached this low point was that I was actually perpetuating a culture of presenteeism by my behaviour. Mm. And so it wasn't just that I was val- valuing my contribution in that way. I was effectively telling the rest of the business that they should be as well. 
and that was quite a hard thing for me to uh to i guess admit but also it it requires therefore a reframing of uh everything you you believe in which is difficult uh but but when i talk about psychological relationship with work that's kind of what i mean which is abandoning that relationship being being based on presence it's a bit like any relationship it's it's not being present with your partner your husband your wife or whatever doesn't necessarily equate to having a quality relationship mm -hmm. so and and it's the same with work you know it's it's one thing to be there but it's another thing to be enjoying it and to be making a valuable contribution and getting all of the benefits of fulfillment and self-worth that come from that so that was the kind of psychological realization i suppose and change that needed to come Mm, okay so when you were both there so there you were in the in the pub with your two for one cocktails and you thought right this uh, I mean that is look that is brilliant and and you know I'm sure people listening to this they they um also may be having their two for one cocktails and especially where they've had a few of them and it's very easy to say <laughs> do you know what we're going to start a bet you know right, we're going to change this but um not that, that not that that's been me I want you to know but I mean actually to be honest it is no. I, I mean it really is I have a spritzer by the way um but uh you get to the point where but then you wake up and then you're like okay right that sounds great but do you know what I've got bills to pay and we've got to just carry on. But obviously you two didn't. So what did you do? And also what I find fascinating is how you, what I find fascinating, and I don't know if I can articulate this, is what you chose to do because you wanted to change the way you work, but the subject or the product that you then chose was changing the way everyone works, which I think is very fascinating. So how did you get to that point to think, and actually, do you know what? We can actually make a living out of this. So I think <clears throat> to answer the first part of your question, I don't know about Alex, but when I woke up the next day, something had changed. I really felt like that was just a pivotal moment in my life. Um, and I'm glad it turned out to me um, because I think, you know, we almost the next day had a conversation where, where we were kind of like, I'm serious about this. Are you serious about this? Yeah, I'm serious about this. Are you serious about this? Um, but I think it's one, of, like you said, it's one of those things. You can have those conversations and then the next day you're like, nah, that's not going to happen. But for me, and I believe for Alex, otherwise he probably wouldn't be here, that was created a permanent change in us. When you've had an idea like that, you know, it sticks with you. And I think we felt this can change lives. Um, and if this can benefit us, this can benefit other people. And so from the start, I think we've had this vision that even if this only changes a few lives, then it's made a difference. Um, and actually now we know that it's changed, in fact, probably thousands of lives, which is incredible to be able to feel. Um, but also I think we'd already kind of worked for ourselves. So we knew that we could start something ourselves and make it work and to be honest we started by looking for a company that worked this way to see if we could go and work there and there just wasn't one in existence and so that's why we started Hoxby and Hoxby has been and continues to be a prototype you know an experimental playground we sometimes call it for work style working and it it works with big clients some of the biggest businesses in the world you know AIA, Unilever, Merck, Amazon, 
divine chocolate, personal favourite of mine. Um, <laughs> With a twist. All... <laughs> There's to a theme. It's always back to no, chocolate, don't... Ellie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't. I yeah, love don't this. Don't near the chocolate. Oh, uh, I love it. Chocolate and two-for-one <laughs> cocktails. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell. You can tell. All my vices. Um but we basically behind the scenes and it was interesting. Some of those clients said to us, I don't care how you guys work. We just want you to deliver great output. But behind the scenes, we were running this years long experiment into work style working, into people being given the freedom to choose when and where they worked, working in the way that individually suited them best and being judged mm-hmm. on their output. And so I think for us, I mean, I don't know about you, Alex, I feel like the whole thing has just been an awesome ride i mean there have been highs and lows as there are in any organization there continue to be highs and lows but we've learned so much it's felt like such an adventure and i think in part that's doing it with alex you know we we also don't take life too seriously as anyone who's read the book will know um and we're determined to make work fun um as well as mean something and leave a legacy and i think that combination has been really powerful Mm. so just so just going back so you decided then okay we're gonna we're gonna do this so you decided to there and then to set up Hockspeed you say when you first of all you want to look to see if you could work for a different company but but with this different style of working so you'd set up your own so when you set it up then what what as such did you set up what what was it and what was your what was your intention and how did it all begin right at the very beginning so the, I mean, the intention was to prove that you could have a business that uh, enabled everybody within it to choose when and where they work for themselves and to def- have their own work styles and that that be the basis for human collaboration rather than uh, nine to five Monday to Friday office based working. Um, we saw uh, a lot of what, what we were doing in the traditional work by going to an office, by having a server that sat in the corner and employees that came in every day, um, that actually none of that was, was, was actually necessary in the delivery of creative services, which is what we have been providing. What was necessary was brilliant people who have the conditions to, to do their best work. And the rest of it is, is, up for grabs and I suppose what we wanted to do was reimagine a business then that whereby everybody has their own work style so we did that by creating a community so a community of freelancers rather than a company of employees so I think that's probably the first big thing and the reason we chose freelancers is because we wanted them to have autonomy and people to have the autonomy to choose when and where they work in a way that traditional employees don't because they are by their nature contractually uh, obliged to 37 and a half hours a week uh, and in the main from head office certainly that's how it was so that was the first thing we wanted to create a community of freelance who all had this shared uh, belief that work could be done differently and who were excited by the idea of having a work style could fit around their lifestyle and what that meant was we attracted huge numbers of people community very quickly uh people who wanted to have that autonomy because they were 
um, working parents of school-aged kids, whether they were uh, carers or had a, a physical illness or a physical disability, chronic illness, mental health condition. Um, there are neurodivergent people. There are a whole host of people who, for whom the idea of being able to choose when and where they work was liberating and would enable them to access work in a way that traditional nine-to-five employment never could. So we ended up creating this community of incredibly diverse, highly talented people who bring together into project teams to deliver work for those clients that Lizzie talked about. Uh, and and they, they come together, deliver the project, and then disband back into the community. And we saw it as our responsibility to make that community a really engaging and exciting place for freelancers to come and work. And it's that premise has made has has stood the test of time and, and has been how we've run Hoxby ever since. Yeah, well, we and we will carry on talking about it because I mean it is fascinating. It really is. But again, just just going back. Sorry, if we go into like the nitty gritty here, and it's just only because I know it, um, <laughs> <laughs> we do go to the the ins and outs. So you, as set as a sense, so you you had clients who were up for having freelancers as such working for them not necessarily going into the office working nine to five but being judged on their out being accountable as such for their output they would do x job and were they all what kind of freelancers were they you say sort of creative but were they were they, who what kind of jobs were they um so we never put a person into a company right. so it's not a freelance platform it's more like an agency where we will take a brief from a client like Unilever and they'll brief us on a project and then we behind the scenes will break that down into its constituent outputs and bring together freelancers to deliver those so we'll create a team based on their skills passions and circumstances um, in order to deliver against a brief so it isn't really like a freelance community in any other sense um, it's more of a community of people working together as an agency essentially um, and mostly what we're delivering is um, PR and comms, creative and design studio, but also over time, we've realized we've learned a lot about working in an autonomous way. And so now we also consult on work style working, autonomous working, providing tools and materials for companies wanting to implement it themselves, um, and also on learning and, um, you know, creating an impact on the world. So there are various other elements that have grown from that just by the nature of what we've been doing over the last eight years because um with the next chapter so and i think you'll understand this, people like to sort of hear because every people like have ideas but then they think hang oh, on how who do we go to for that first mm. thing so presumably you mm. had to go to somebody who was up for this because it wouldn't have worked if they said look we want them in an office nine to five so you obviously needed to mm. work with first of all a client who was up with this different way of working yeah, well, I, I think I think the first thing is what we're saying is we don't need employees, we don't need offices to do great creative work. Come on, everyone, let's just let's just break with that immediate past that understanding of how work needs to get done. And what that meant was we were perceived probably as as uh, I don't know a little bit a little bit. Um, far-fetched in our ideals perhaps by some prospective clients but for the people uh, who wanted to work in a work style way this was an opportunity that they've never had before and it was incredibly exciting 
So they came to us and we built a community and the community had no offices, no employees. It's just a shared belief. And what we did was use that community to tap into a prospective client base. So we wanted, we were looking for like-minded people. So people who would see value and they would understand the value by talking to the people who are in the community who can articulate the value because it means something to them personally. So how we started was very much with that philosophy, which is people like working with people. We will build a community of people who think a certain way and who have a certain set of values and a belief system. And they will talk about Hoxby and they will bring uh, client conversations to Hoxby, which, which is exactly what happened. Mm. And this was all before the pandemic. So this is, I mean, in a sense, the pandemic then, uh, you know, that that's, I mean, the whole way we all work has changed since then. So you were sort of very much sort of ahead of, ahead of your time. And did you find back then were, were, I mean, you're talking about, like you say, really big companies, were they receptive to this idea of, at first, were they easily receptive to this idea of uh, people sort of not necessarily being present in the office, but just being paid to do the job and fitting in the hours that they wanted to do? I think that um, one thing that's really interesting, and this kind of builds on what Alex was just saying, is that reputation means so much. And not just Alex, my reputation, the reputation of people within the community. And so we found that from the start, kind of clients were coming I don't want to make it sound too easy because it definitely hasn't been easy but in a way clients were kind of coming to us based on knowing someone in the community or knowing someone who knew someone in the community and knowing therefore that we we had some exceptional talent but I would say that at the start lots of our clients only cared about our outputs not our working model so they worked with us because we delivered the best work for them not because they wanted a work style working agency. And I think that actually pretty much up to the pandemic, there were a number of people who would just say to us, yeah, I, I don't care how you work. I just care that you deliver the best work, which in a way, you know, we, we wrestled with that because in a way that's all you want is you want to be known by your reputation for delivering great work. But then separately, we started this because we believed in something and we wanted to share that. And so I think that whilst the pandemic um, was horrendous in almost every way for us the one benefit was we went from being treated like kind of weirdos you know why would you all work remotely when and when it suits you um, to people actually coming to us and saying how do you you know how do you do this how do you work how do you lead how do you inspire people how do you make sure you can ensure their well-being um, and so Alex and I tried to kind of open source how we worked we tried to we, we ran a campaign called Remote Against Coronavirus to try and encourage organisations to quickly and seamlessly move to everyone working remotely and on their own terms. You know, lots of people having kids at home at the same time as working and whatever. Um, and we just found that we couldn't have all the conversations that people wanted to have. And so really that's where the book came from. Um, that we just, at that point thought, hang on a minute, now everyone's interested in this and actually we've learned a load of stuff over the last eight years let's put it down in a book um so yeah that's that was one of the two reasons why we uh 
started writing the book. And and just before we get onto the book, but that actually, what you said there is the whole point, isn't it? They these companies knew that you had good quality people, a sense, and they wanted a good quality job done. And that actually is the whole point, isn't it? I mean, it shouldn't be. It goes back to what you were saying earlier, Alex. You know, just if you're in an office from eight in the morning till ten at night, doesn't mean to say you're going to be doing the best job. But really, the company, we everyone actually is on the same page. We just want the best job done otherwise or unless it's all about egos and just being powerful and seeing those people sitting there at 10 o'clock at night it makes it makes a sort of a very old-fashioned way of doing things so um so it's it's totally totally fascinating and you lizzie i have heard you speak as well because also then you uh, you um had a cancer diagnosis and this then completely everything you you then really had to live what you had designed as well yeah, and I think Alex and I, you know, with Alex's burnout and with me having kids, that was the start of our work style journey. But for me, my real appreciation for the importance of work style has actually come since then. Um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, my husband's since been diagnosed with cancer, ridiculously. Oh, and so, you know, I think for me, this has gone from being something that is about fitting work around a family to understanding just how critical it can be. You know, it really helped my mental health during that cancer treatment, you know, passing the time in the chemotherapy chair, the cancer diagnosis not defining me. Uh, I didn't want thoughts of cancer to be, you know, dominant in my head. And work style working allowed me to keep hold of a bit of my previous self. Um, and and that's also, that was also a catalyst for the book. You know, me personally, I wanted my kids to know what I was fighting for if I wasn't around to tell them myself and so that was a real um kind of motivator for actually getting the book done which to be fair we have talked about I think Alex since I think we talked about it like the the night in the pub or certainly that week like mm-hmm. right from the start we said we were going to write a book but I think that kind of gave us a bit of a kick up the ass to do it so. mm-hmm. and, and I mean you look very well so you look like you look like you're doing well so I hope you're well I am well. My hair's grown back finally. Um, so yes, I'm I'm doing well, and I am loving life. I'm grateful for every day. Oh, how wonderful! How wonderful! So, so, but I mean, and also, this is again, this is something that we talk about here on the next chapter. Is that it's all very well people say about jobs and work, and okay, you do your job, and okay, who really likes their job, you know? And I, a, I'm, you know, believe that you absolutely can love your job, but it it's true, isn't it, Lizzie? I'm sure you feel the same, Alex. That work, it, if you get this right it can provide a structure to your life it's not just about having a job and I found this myself with my own things with my own writing or that that actually even in really difficult times if you can just go and do that thing that you love to do that can help you through so much much more than just going into an office and doing your hours clocking off and spending your time looking forward to your holidays and your time off life doesn't have to be like this does it And we say that life changes and every life is different. And the truth is, you know, I've had a tough few years, but everyone's had a tough few years. Everyone has a tough time in their own way, whether you know it or not. I think one thing that WorkStyle does is it means we bring our whole selves to our relationship with work. We're transparent about what we want our work to fit around with other people, which also means that we're treated as people who empathise with our lives, not just work so I think you know work can be such a source of positivity as well as a source of longer life you know in the book we say you know even 
um, postponing retirement by one year means you can live for 11% longer. So, you know, there is a, there's a benefit to life as well. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. myth, yeah, and and people do. Sorry, sorry, Alex, but this whole thing about and certainly our parents' generation, it was all about retirement. But we're seeing my husband and I are very much. I mean, a I don't know if we'll ever be able to afford to retire anyway. But more to the point, we we don't ever want to retire because I, I you've got to keep growing, haven't you? That's the whole point of living is that you keep keep growing. Um, and do you feel the same, Alex? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> yeah, evolving. I think to touch on what you were saying before, Ellie, evolving uh, towards a sense of purpose is um, really important for work to play a fulfilling role in our lives, and it can. But when we restrict ourselves to one job and think of it as somewhere we go, uh, Monday to Friday, nine to five, then that becomes the entirety of work's meaning. And we are led perhaps more by that than by what we really want to achieve um, and, and what actually motivates us. And when we kind of came up with the idea for work style around that time, almost 10 years ago now, uh, which is crazy to say, but you know, the sharing economy was becoming more of a thing a portfolio career also more of a thing so the, the the idea that you could be freelance and have multiple strings to your bow and make up a, a work portfolio that complements your life choices and takes you closer towards your sense of purpose uh starts to make a lot more sense you know humans are multifaceted and we we should be able to do more things with our brain than perhaps a single job allows us to um and the idea of a sharing economy <clears throat> people were were suddenly comfortable with subletting rooms in their houses simply because a platform called Airbnb made it possible. Uh, but we all became comfortable with this idea that you don't need to own stuff uh, in the same way anymore. You can just access it when you need it. And the same is true of, of people in, in a way for, for organisations. And that was one of the things that we were trying to prove with, with Hoxby as well. It's not about us having ownership of 50 people in an office it's about us being able to create access to thousands of people around the world and benefit from the diversity of thinking that can can bring and that that has huge advantage to business and that's that's kind of the shifting uh, in mindset that is happening i think and that as individuals if we're aware of it, we can start to take more advantage of it and utilise it to take us closer towards our, the things that motivate us and, and, and our sense of purpose. Mm. And like you say, I mean, so it has been, um, I, I mean, it's amazing, nearly a decade now. So, so you have Hoxby, so you started off as you did. And then, as you say, you, you've gone on then to advise companies as well. So seeing this whole way of working and you've written this amazing book for the fabulous reasons. So, I mean, so somebody listening to this, okay, if someone's listening to this and first, so two things, first of all, they, they have a company and they think, or they work in a big company and they're part of the management board and they think, hang on, okay, this all sounds great, but do you know what? This doesn't work like this. And I know you, you've you've heard this a lot of times, you know, our industry, for example, as a journalist, we're on air at six o'clock at night and we, you know, we actually, to be fair, we, we are, since the pandemic, there's lots of flexible working, but some company, you, you have to be in that newsroom at six o'clock, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. And if you've got and other companies might say but do you know we have to have people here and they have to work in a certain place what would you say to those people to try and convince them that actually it doesn't have to be that way 
So I think firstly, the knowledge economy is a huge part of our economy. So even if only people who aren't place-based workers worked in this way, it would change so many lives. But also, I think work style isn't just a structure of work, it's an attitude to work. It's the belief that work should be individualised to the individual and that people should have autonomy over their own work styles. So for us, it's about looking through that lens at the current workforce in any organisation. So, for instance, um, we talk sometimes about midwifery. There's a staffing crisis in midwifery. The NHS has record high numbers of vacancies overall. Imagine if they could take more of a work style working approach. They could bring new people in to fill those vacancies because they'd be offering people the opportunity to fit work around their lives. And the UK has, you know, huge labour market shortages at the moment. And we've been supporting the government with their UK labour markets inquiry um, and showing them how many people are in the excluded group that Alex talks about earlier, those groups that would like to work but can't. You know, 77% of people with autism want to work, but only 26% do. That's a 51% gap of people who want to work, but for whom working in the traditional structure doesn't work. So I think it's about understanding that this isn't a nice thing to do. This is the right thing for society, but it's also the right thing for a business to do. It's a source of competitive advantage and it's a mindset. It's about looking differently at your organisation um, and seeing how work can be more individualised for the people within it. So maybe perhaps having, say, shorter shifts or, uh, you know, I, I suppose something like the exactly. NHS is like 24 hours. So you can find the, the, the slot that fits you. But sort of things like that, is that that's the sort of things that you would suggest? Yeah. Yeah. I would encourage people to just look at the way they're working, wherever they are, and see how much of that is driven by industrial age thinking and an industrial age paradigm and therefore how much of that could be changed now that we live in a digital age let's not forget it's more than 200 years since the basic eight hour day was thought of and since then we've invented electricity uh, we've also traded horses for cars and been to the surface of the moon and lots we've done as humanity <laughs> since then that might mean we ought to rethink how we work as well because yeah. there are opportunities to shed a lot of that baggage but it's very hard to take your brain out of a paradigm that's had two centuries of conditioning and into a world that we now inhabit which is digitally led and there's so much that's going to change in the future as as ai and uh, automation and technology shapes the work we do that we, the quicker we let go of the mindset, the quicker we can start to take advantage of the many benefits that that's going to bring. Mm. And and I mean, obviously, the the big word is trust as such. And as sticking still with the employer's point of view, and you must know this as well, because if you are introducing the freelancers to clients, I mean, how how. You know, I know I've I've never really been a, I've never been a manager, but I also know that everyone who is a manager says managing people is the hardest thing that they've ever done, um, and to and to and finding really good people is equally hard. You know, um, and so how do you what do you do? How do you know somebody is trustworthy? And how also what would do you say to companies to say this is how you can show that somebody is trustworthy? If that makes sense, I appreciate it's all about this trust but actually they need to get the job done how do they know they're going to get the job done 
I mean, we're big believers in swift trust. So that means assume trust to start with. Uh, we were talking to someone the other day about faith in human nature, faith in humanity, and how that underpins this whole way of working. And work style only works if it's underpinned by trust. Culturally, that's going to be the biggest shift for organisations as we move through the coming decades and the prevailing way of work moves in a work style direction. But I think for us, that's not just about saying we're a trustworthy organisation. It's something that needs to be role modelled by leaders. It needs to kind of garner recognition um, and reward for doing it well. And I think Alex and I have always tried to create a culture of trust at Hoxby and we try and show the way that we're working and how much we trust other people in the hope that that is kind of contagious um, and carries through everyone else. But I think ultimately it's amazing what you get in return if you give people trust. We talk about reciprocity, but if you trust people to deliver an output, 9.9 .9 times out of 10, they will do that. And particularly when there's a team charter and you have a team who have all agreed that they're going to achieve an output working together in their own work styles to get there. So I think for us, trust is, as you say, underpins all of it. And it's such a big topic. But yeah, that's absolutely central. And presumably, is there, I've heard you speak this as well, like accountability. I mean, I suppose that's that's the simplest way of doing it, mm -hmm. isn't it? That there's just this job needs to be done. Presumably, it has to be done by a certain time and you know that and I, I've heard you talk as well about still what what you're saying is not sort of like necessarily oh everyone just go off and do whatever they want whenever they you still have structures but it's working around those structures uh, absolutely and and it forms the the basis of where that trust comes from so we we set up Hoxby with freelancers because we wanted to give them autonomy. One of the benefits of that is that they're used to working to outputs rather than time. We're not bringing them in to work a 40-hour week. We're bringing them in to deliver an output and they're accountable to that output. They're also only as good as their last piece of work. As a general rule, freelancer mindset is that. That's very different from an employee mindset who's who's the terms of the deal are be present for 40 hours a week and fulfill a range of responsibilities. Um, and really that's less clear as grounds for trust to be built. If you're clear about what the output is, then it's much easier to say whether this is or isn't right. Uh, and much easier to give trust to people knowing that you, you, you all understand what the output goal is. Um, and I think that's where a lot of tensions come between managers and, and employees is around the terms of the relationship being less clearly defined. So it's not always outputs that are being talked about, but that's a, a shift in language, and but a shift that enables greater accountability when we actually start talking in terms of output, whether that output delivered what it should have done, whether it was delivered to a good standard and so on. Those are the things that validate whether we can trust one another more than were you in the office at nine o'clock or were you 20 minutes late? And what does that say about your attitude and so on and so forth? And those kind of uh, falsities that, that exist, but that can undermine trust. So uh, accountability for output enables trust to, to be built in, in, on better terms, I think, than, than presence. And how, so do you have anyone at Hoxby working full time for you or is it all on a freelance basis? No, 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 no employees. 
no, no offices. Amazing. No such thing as full-time or part-time. Everybody's freelance and it's uh, project to project. Wow. And do you ever have meetings where you all get together or certain people all get together? Do you have? Do you do that on Zoom? Or do you have sort of certain timeframes? We, we have get-togethers where we have fun. Mm. Do, you, do you have cocktails <laughs> and chocolate? But that is the this reason. Year, this year yeah, chocolate and two-for-one cocktails. Yep. Yay! <laughs> I'm going to invite myself now. I'm going to invite, definitely invite myself. Yeah, yeah invite yourself along. I'm we coming. do once a year. We do a big meetup where anyone can come and people fly in from around the world. But we also do small meetups, you know, Hoxley Homes, where people are meeting, you know, every week somewhere around the world. But I think the point is that those meetups are not to deliver work; they're to connect with other other people and to get to know each other. So they're more about having fun and making connections than they are. They're never about doing work. And how many people would you say then are like, how, I mean, like you say, it's all, this is all over the world now, isn't it? I mean, from that idea in the pub, this is all over the world. How many people at the moment today would you say you kind of freelance as your PR? what do I say, not, not work, you know, you're working with? Well, there's, there's around 500 at the moment, mm-hmm. um, but over the last eight years, we've had more than 3,000 come through Hoxby, um and and have their own work style and do work style work over that time amazing i mean and what do you advise to people because the other on the other side of the coin then as somebody who would who would love to work in this way the danger is that you never switch off you know and we know all you know we have seen that and you know we do know the burnout is just such a huge thing here in this country at the moment what do you say to people and i i would appreciate this advice even like i get it with you know when i do my journalism job like you go in and you do your job and you come home and you leave it behind whereas with my writing and this kind of work you can just constantly keep going which presumably some people can and that's a very different shift so what do you use how do you tell people to manage their time and to make sure they do have proper cutoff times so we talk about the framework of set project and respect with work style set your own work style for yourself project it by sharing it with other people because that makes you more likely to stick to it but also they can help you and then respect it and the respecting your work style interesting that you asked that because what Alex and I are doing now, the kind of next chapter, <laughs> if you will, is we are taking we're taking work style and we're creating learning modules off the back of it. We're creating bite-sized, entertaining and engaging learning modules so that people learn how to work in more of a work style way. And that one of those is on boundary setting, which is that basically the accountability moves from the organisation to say you need to be here at nine and you need to leave at five to the individual to say, this is when I'm going to work, but therefore this is when I'm not going to work. And that means, I think, knowing yourself really well and managing yourself in in a different way. But also it can sometimes be about having a partner, like I have Alex who helps hold me to account, and we find that other people are better at holding people to account than they are themselves. And also about controlling your technology so that it doesn't control you. So there are various aspects of that but I think boundary setting is going to be such an important skill as more and more people move to work in this way Mm-mm. well you have brought me swiftly on and very neatly on I mean it's fascinating I could talk to you about this both of you all day I mean it's just so fascinating because this really is opening up I mean it's opening up to so many I mean so many people I know and um, women who listen to this um you know they're not doing the jobs that they want to do they are mothers and I'm sorry to say that that you know being sexist but it is the case and that they're so well qualified or they've just got so much experience being by being mothers and running the houses 
and yet they feel that they can't go back into the workplace. So this is really transformational that they can use skills to work in these different ways. So yeah, is it, and so on your to be continued, you say there you do the learning and is it just presumably more developing and working with more and more companies to, to show that this is the way forward? Yes, it is. Yeah. So we just want to change as many lives for the better as we can. And so that means working with companies so more of their employees can work this way. It's also about growing the WorkStyle Revolution community. We have a Slack community and um, the links at WorkStyleRevolution.com where anyone, however they work, can come and join the community and just be a part of that movement and learn from other people. And then, as I said, helping to kind of train people and organisations in working this way and the characteristics that set you up to be able to work this way. So things like boundary setting and remote leadership. So that's kind of where we're looking to go next. For your acknowledgements, who would you like to thank who's helped you along the way? So many people. I mean, broad groups, all of the Hoxbees, all of the work stylers, all of the people who've read book. I mean, my goodness, when we were all the time we were writing this book, we were thinking, is anyone going to read it? Because like when you were talking to Kathy Bramley, we were given the advice that we did first book, you write the whole thing. And so we spent a long time writing it. And obviously, we then went on to rewrite it a few times we wondered if anyone was going to read it and it was going to make a difference so you know to everyone who's read the book um our editor was amazing at encouraging us to write in our own tone of voice which was something i think we really needed that confidence boost um and you know all the clients that have worked with us over the past eight ten years you know just being willing to take a chance on an organization that works a bit differently but has lots of amazing people uh, in it and then our families as well I would just say you know Alex and I have both got kids we've got partners that have been alongside us every step of the way and it's been a real roller coaster and they've continued to believe in us all the way through they believed in us more writing a book than we did ourselves I think um, and yeah just so much so much gratitude for so many people mm, well I'm sure they've got gratitude to you and very finally then as well says so I mean you've given so much advice but on the final section tips and advice what would you say to someone who is listening to this and thinking do you know what it, this all sounds good but this does not apply to me even though they're miserable feeling perhaps how you felt Alex or going through something you've been through Lizzie but just really genuinely feeling do you know what there's no way I can make this work for me what would you say to that person um, I really want to word this brilliantly, but I'm probably just going to stumble over my words here when I say that really uh, it feels uncomfortable and it feels um, scary and unrealistic. Um, but those are all emotions and feelings that have been created because we live in a comfort zone most of the time. But actually, if we break out of that comfort zone, change the way we think, take actions that take us into somewhere uncomfortable, that's where we can really grow, develop and learn and improve. And the nine to five mindset of traditional work is a comfort zone. And work style feels like a big leap, but actually it's incredibly liberating and empowering to start taking control of when and where you work for yourself and stop being told when and where to be there and how you work best start defining it for yourself and you'll find that you unlock massive productivity gains you start doing the best work of your life you start prioritizing your physical and mental health and well-being 
and you develop a more inclusive mindset to your approach in the way that you work. So there's lots to be gained, but you have to feel like you can break out of that comfort zone. And eventually you will, because eventually something will happen that, that, that forces you to say, okay, enough's enough, I'm going to do something about this. That's when it's it's time to read the book. Get (laughs) the book and come and join the community. (laughs) Read the book and see if it sparks something is the other thing, you know, Um, and start using the word work style, which is what we always say, just try it, use it to the cat, see how it goes down. Alex and Lizzie, again, I could talk to you all day. This is fascinating. Thank you for helping so many people, starting so many next chapters. It's amazing. This brilliant work. Thank you for being such fabulous guests. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure, Ellie. So there you are. Crikey. Well, look, it makes you think, doesn't it? I mean, what really is possible if you really think about it? And there's so much good advice there. I mean, I just love that. Set project and respect. I'm so going to use this. Now, to learn more about Lizzie and Alex and their brilliant work at Hoxby, the link is in the show notes, and their book Work Style Could Change the Way You Think About Work Forever. The link is in the show notes for that too. And if you want to keep in touch with me and my books, well, I would love that. You can find me at elliebarkerwrites.com. I'd also love to hear what you think about today's episode. So go on, get thinking. I dare you, just say it out loud. What is your ideal working life? Lizzie and Alex think you can have it and I do too. Speak soon.